What is up, guys? Raj Galardi back in your ears to bring you the first Call to Violence podcast of the year. You know, 2020 was a roller coaster for all of us, but for me personally, um, it was something out of fiction almost. Uh, I became a father, finished college, started a family, had to move back to my roots all within that nine-month period. But while everything seemed grim for a time, um, you know, the UFC and the rest of the MMA world delivered much-needed relief for all of us, uh, especially during these strange times. Uh, We had so many memorable fights, so many memorable moments that 2020 will definitely go down in the books as one of the best years in the sport, even with all the pandemic stuff. You know, the, the year really did start off with a bang. You know, we had Jones take on Dominic Reyes, who, you know, everyone thought Reyes, lo- or Reyes won, um, kind of looked at him as the uncrowned champ, which led into uh, Joanna and Wei Lee just really elevating the sport on the women's side with their crazy title fight. And not just their division and not just, you know, their names, but that, that fight really did elevate the uh the rest of the women in general in my opinion and it really was kind of the staple fight i believe the women needed for fans to look at and be like no no no, this is the bar this is the standard this is what these girls are capable of and this is the kind of standard we should hold them to and this is kind of what we should expect out of them because that was amazing and that's what a lot of us hardcores have been saying for a while is that no, no no these women are really capable of you know having great fights you just need a great matchup, um, and, you know, that was it, um, and then, you know, we had the whole thing with, uh, you know, even though it was a dud, we had, you know, Yo Romero and Adesanya, and what was supposed to be, you know, the continuation of, of Adesanya's reign, which obviously it is, but that, you know, that fight kind of, uh, hampered it a little bit, but it's actually what made the Paula Costa fight even more interesting, because we knew Paula Costa wouldn't, you know, wait on the outside like Romero did. So that actually, you know, uh, made made that fight down the road uh, a lot more interesting. But then right after that, you know, the whole pandemic hit. We were supposed to get the uh, best lightweight matchup, uh, best lightweight fight, um, probably in the history, in the, uh, what was supposed to be the history with, uh, with Khabib and Tony. But since that fight is cursed, you know, a pandemic had to happen for that to get knocked out for a fifth, fifth time. Um, and there's just no way that fight is ever going to happen again. So the pandemic really kind of burned that fight down and then blew its ashes away into the wind. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, then, then the rest of the, uh, the rest of the year was just a roller coaster. Um, we had that big UFC 249 card with, uh, with, uh, Tony Ferguson taking on Justin at the last minute and Justin just putting on a performance of his life, really building momentum. We had, um, who else was on that card? God, that just, it feels, so, it, it, it really wasn't that long ago, but it feels like so long ago. Um, man, I think that's when Henry, Henry beat Cruz and, you know, Henry really, you know, took the best of everybody who's done well against Dominic Cruz. He used leg kicks like, uh, like TJ did. He waited for Dom to enter like Cody did. And he kind of mixed those together and just really put on the performance of a life of his life uh, against Dominic Cruz. And then unfortunately just decides he wants to quit when he's all the way at the top. That's right. And then Francis just bulldoze Rosenstruck, um, Calvin Cater elbowed Jeremy Stevens all the way to Hades. And then, yeah, I guess Greg Hardy was also on that card, but who gives a shit about that? Um, and then, you know, the rest of the year just, again, it got kind of weird. It had its ups and downs, but uh, really glad uh, that we're here to tell the story. Anyways, I'm just rambling now. 
let's get right on to it. Um, so in this episode, we are going to, I'm going to kind of recap my favorite things about 2020. Um, and then we'll get down to breaking down the big fight on Saturday, which I'm a really big fan of with Stevens and Calvin, or sorry, Stevens, with uh, Max Holloway and Calvin Cater. So let's get on to things. So my favorite thing about the pandemic version of the UFC was that there was no fans. Uh, I really enjoyed not hearing, uh, having the fans input. And even though it did take away from some of the big moments, not hearing woos by all of Ric Flair's illegitimate children in the crowd was something I will never, ever, ever miss. And when we finally do get crowds again, as soon as I hear the first woo, I'm probably going to turn the volume all the way off. We didn't get any booing in inappropriate spaces. Um, and I really wonder if no crowd, you know, ch- kind of changed uh, the perspectives for refs. Or not not, not change the perspective, but I, I wonder if refs didn't feel like a sense of urgency for stand-ups and separations and breaks and stuff like that. But most of all, I really like no crowd uh, because every shot felt way more impactful and bigger. Um it really showed me that you know a lot of the fight really does get lost in the heat of the crowd, um, whether they're you know drowning out a shot with their noise or you know there's a really really important moment but the crowd doesn't realize it so they don't have the energy, and so um, and even the the commentary had a better assessment of what was going on in there because they could hear everything. Um, and, um, you know, usually I, I know that they get hindered with their sight, but I feel like not having the distraction of the crowd really let them kind of immerse themselves, uh, way more clearly into the fight. And so I feel like, uh, I feel like both from an official and from the commentary side or from a broadcast side, like I really feel like it, it improved, uh, the dynamic of it. Um, but yeah, you know what though? But it, again, it really did take away from like um, some big moments, you know, some great fights, some great knockouts. And what the really interesting thing is, is we're going to get a Conor McGregor fight with no crowd. And, you know, we've been dealing with that for so long. So most people are going to be like, oh, well, it's not going to be any different than the rest of it. But that's not true. The way Connor fights is he really is kind of reliant on that crowd, you know, whether it's his antics in inside the cage and having the crowd react off of him, which further kind of gets into the head of his opponent. Um, it's going to be really strange. It's going to be really strange. So I wonder if he'll use the same tactics or not. But real quick, I'm just going to give my uh, fighter of the year, fight of the year, submission, and knockout of the year real quick. Um, so I kind of have a few for these, but... I'm going to start with fighter of the year. And this is just based on a consistency basis. Like you can, I mean, this is all subjective stuff. So I'm just saying this is like how I view it. But I got to go with Kevin Holland. You know, he did have that super close fight with, oh, I forget his name. And I actually thought he lost. But even in the lost, I feel like the rest of his, uh, the rest of his year kind of kind of evens it out was it Darren? yeah it was darren stewart that darren stewart fight was super super close in september but um you know but that that's what happens when you're super active you have a super close fight like that that everyone thinks you lost and then you uh rebound with two finishes two crazy finishes and everyone forgets that hey the last or two fights ago everyone thought you lost so that's what happens when you're consistent but in my opinion it is disrespectful to him 
and and to what he's done if you think he doesn't get fighter of the year and don't give me this Kazmat Shemaev nonsense on 10 days notice bullshit don't don't fucking feed that shit to me you know uh Shemaev's first two fights were against a guy who was one and three in the UFC that guy is now one and five which is telling where the UFC is at because you know before if you lost two in a row especially if they're finishes you were done I didn't matter what your name was you were done you weren't getting a call back for a third fight um you were definitely get your, getting your walking papers and then the second guy he got put up against was a blown up lightweight at 170 who is clearly undersized and way overmatched and yeah the Gerald Marshart you know knockout was great but that was really his only legitimate you know opponent um throughout the year so I'm not discrediting what Shemayev did in 10 days you know that's great it's very uh it's um it's uh you know very admirable but you can't put that up against Collins uh, uh Collins Holland's uh five fights this year you just can't do that especially the way he ended it with that Jacques Ryan knockout get out of here um so fight of the year I kind of had to break into a couple different categories just because there was so many amazing fights this year I mean really like ones that will go down in the top five forever um that's how many good fights we had this year and um so for title fight uh for title I, I kind of broke this down into title fight and non-title fight and so for title fight of the year obviously t- for me it's it's Yoana and Wei Lee Figueredo and Marino was also really really good but I just I, I feel like with what Yoana and Wei Lee did um it just meant the most in my opinion um just again I kind of spoke about it in the beginning of this episode where they really put the women on the map and they really showed like what really 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 high level women can do um you know on a championship level um so to me and it was just like the back and forth way Lee kind of was you know coming on and you know like they didn't have any of like the big like someone's almost out or finished moments and then the other person came back but just from a pace point of view that was 25 minutes of hell and both of them could have probably gone another two rounds if they wanted to that was insane um non-title fight goes to dustin and dan hooker which i mean if you watched that fight live you were there was no way you were sitting um that was the most insane 25 minute non-title fight I, i've seen uh, or de- it's definitely up there with some of the craziest non-title fights uh 25 minute non-title fights that i've ever seen i mean dan hooker came up and just pieced dustin poirier up for two rounds and then Dustin really had to bite down and come on strong later and then really showed his his you know veteran grit and that you know he still wants to be here he still wants to fight at a top level and he wants to be the champ and that's what he proved in that Dan Hooker fight and both of those guys just went through hell and back and I'm still not really sure if either guy's gonna if uh, either guy's gonna be the same really after that fight. But then one fight that was that stacks up with both of those fights that nobody talks about because it kind of flew under the radar a little bit, wasn't on the biggest fight night card. But the dark horse fight of the year goes to Josh Emmett and Shane Burgos. Guys, if you guys haven't seen this fight, go check it out. But just to recap it a little bit, you know, Shane Burgos just 
big for 145. Just this monster frame for 145. And Josh Emmett is no small chicken either, but just clearly outsized uh, frame-wise. And Shane Burgos is just kind of piecing, piecing Emmett up. Just leg kicks, touching him, touching him, touching him. Emmett uh, ultimately blows out his knee and has to fight like a wounded animal fighting on this big predator and ends up just twice. First in this, uh, I think he knocked him down three times total, but after just getting pieced up, knocks down Shane, or, uh, knocks down Shane Burgos. Then in the third, does the same thing on one leg. Literally pulls that fight out of his ass on one leg. And there's a few times I thought he was going to finish Shane, and that would have been one of the greatest comebacks of all time. And it still is one of the greatest comebacks of all time. But with fights like that, you know, Burgos, I think, has fought once since then, but Emmett's going to be out a while with that knee injury. And once Emmett does come back, he's probably going to get thrown right back into the uh, the thick of things at the top end of 145. Um, so that's another division to walk, watch out for is 145 uh, going into 2021. Submission of the year. Now... All of these have been UFC's UFC, you know, fight so far, and um, you know it was kind of a a, a rebuilding year for I uh, for a lot of the MMA promotions, and you know I, I don't feel like a lot of them got got a lot of shine, even with Bellator being number two. But you know what, Bellator is really coming up with their with their young hot prospects, and so my submission of the year is going to be the McKeatine by AJ McKee on Darian Caldwell. Um, which was in the second round of that uh, featherweight Grand Prix that they're doing. And for a kid like A.J. McKee to submit a really, really strong heavy grappler like Darion Caldwell, who's a vet, who's fought all the best guys. He's had those wars with Horiguchi. Um, he's fought both at 140. Or he's, you know, he's fought in the best at 135. He's going up to 145. For him to be on his back and to lock up a submission like that and then to get Darian Caldwell to tap that early as well is just unbelievable. Um, so if you haven't seen that, go check that out. It's just, it, it's it's stupid sick. Stupid sick. Um, obviously, you can give Khabib. Uh, so that's my number one. Number two would be Khabib's Mounted Triangle on, uh, on Justin. To, to, I mean, and then again, that just goes to show you what kind of grappling could be. He's just on a whole nother level. Um, you know, Justin had a lot of momentum going into that fight. And Khabib just really showed, like, dude, I don't care who you guys throw at me in, in the toughest division of MMA, but I'm going to freaking burn through them like fire. It doesn't, he just does not care. Does not care who you are, what you've accomplished, what your biggest strength is. He's going to take you down. He's going to get on top of you. And if he doesn't pound your face in, he's going to choke you unconscious. And so that will be – And for you, don't, for you guys who don't grapple, for you to get a mounted triangle on a guy at that level is just insane. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that uh, could be or that uh, Justin's grappling is is on a super high level, but you can't get to that level of the sport without being at least competent. And if you're competent, you're not getting mountain, mounted triangled like that. So that was definitely a big one. And then uh, maybe I you know triangles are my favorite submission, and you rarely ever see them anymore. So anytime they do happen, um, I definitely favor them a lot. Uh, but Jimmy Flick's Flying Triangle 2 uh, was one of my favorites of the year. I must have watched that like like 30 times in a row. So that's my favorite submission. Um, and then Knockout, you know, 
there was a, a bunch of good knockouts this year. My favorite, I mean, obviously, you know, Joaquin Buckley's probably gonna gonna take the cake for it just because of, um, you know, how, what it was, how it happened, and all that. Like that was something out of a video game. That was something out of Mortal Kombat. That was something, um, something out of a movie. Like whatever kind of fictional scenario you can come up for a fight, like that that tops any sort of fiction. Um, so that's definitely up there, but I think my favorite was probably Cody Garbrandt's against Rafael Sansao. The speed, the disregard for Hoffa's defense, the and for his own defense, the I mean just everything, the explosion, the setup. Again, that was kind of something out of a movie too. Like that that's definitely something you would see out of an 80s action movie that was super corny where you know, the lead the lead has his back up against the fence and it looks like he, you know, something bad's about to happen to him. And so what does the lead do? He bends down to his hip to wind up to come back with just a right hand haymaker. Like, come on. You don't see that. You you don't see a, a high level fighters wind up like that. And only Cody can do that because of his speed. But he dipped, acting like he was gonna go to the body. He saw the open. He saw Hoffa's hands drop for the counter, and then he just came up with his own cat. Like that was just insane. Um, so that was probably my favorite. Um, uh, Yuri Proshka against uh, Ozdemir was also a great one. That fadeaway right hand against the cage, and just seeing Ozdemir fall over was great. Uh, Calvin Cater's just elbow to Jeremy Stevens was great. Um, obviously Kevin Holland knocking out Jacare from his back. That was insane. So there's a lot of great knockouts, but, um, I definitely think, um, I guess you got to give it to Buckley just for that, uh, uh, just for that setup and that kick and that finish. But, uh, going into 2021, two things that I, or one thing that I really hope that we see is God, I just hope welterweight and heavyweight really get back on track. For the last three years, we've only seen the belt get defended. What? Or we had. Uh, well, I guess. I guess we had um, DC beat. We had DC beat Stipe, then defend against Lewis, right? But that was in 2019, right? DC versus. All right. Let's see, Daniel Cormier. Let's see this timeline here, because he beats. Beat Stipe and then defends it against Lewis, right? Yeah. Oh, God, that was in 2018. Jesus. Okay, so, yeah. So, DC beat... So, in okay, so in the last... Here, look, can we do it this way? So, in the last three years, we've seen... Um, we've seen the belt get defended. So, from 2018, we had Stipe defend against... Inganu. Uh, uh, and then we had him lose against DC. DC then beat, uh, defended against Lewis. And then we go on a hiatus for pretty much a, almost a year. And then Stipe gets his belt back. And then a year later, uh, Stipe retains against DC. So in three years, we've had five title fights at heavyweight, which is just to me, if it's going to be your marquee division, that's just ridiculous. We need to keep that boat rolling. And especially right now, I mean, we got a we got a lot of top com- top contenders at heavyweight, which kind of wasn't the deal for a little bit. But we got Curtis Blades, we got Derek Lewis coming back, we got Ngannou tearing through everybody, we got uh, the new guy who just uh, destroyed Junior Dos Santos. 
I don't want to not say his name. Um, yes, yeah, a real game. So we got a lot of top contenders at heavyweight now. And with welterweight, you know, welterweight is right behind lightweight for most competitive division, especially right now with the amount of high-level grapplers who can knock your head off too. Um, you know, guys like Gilbert Burns, guys like uh, Usman, guys like, you know, Colby really can't knock your head off, but Colby. Um, you got uh, 170 is stacked right now. And, for the, and you know, you got Leon Edwards who's been waiting. Ponzinibbio's coming back this weekend. Um so I really want those guys. I really want those two divisions to start having uh, some more title defenses to really get the ball moving. But with all that out of the way, let's move on to this weekend, guys. I am so fucking stoked for this shit. We got uh, Calvin Cater taking on Max Holloway, and what's great about this fight is, um. This is just a great stylistic matchup. I mean, both guys complement uh, each other very well. Um, both of them pose. Uh, both of them have strengths that are the other one's weakness, and um, just both of their styles are going to make for a really, really crazy fight. Now, a couple interesting things. This is the first time since August of 2015 that Max has been on free TV, and that doesn't mean anything in regards to his fight or anything like that, but. That's how long this guy's been fighting at a top level. All of his fights for the last five years have been pay-per-view, uh, a main card pay-per-view. If not the main, and obviously um, the last few, you know, he's been either co-main or main event. Um, so that just shows you what kind of level Max has been fighting on uh, for this long. And you know what's also great is that you know Max didn't use his name to get a more favorable matchup. Instead, he's betting on himself. He's taken a hot, dangerous prospect in the division who really on paper doesn't uh, – he Max doesn't match up very well with Cater. Cater, again, does have a, a lot of strengths that could really hurt Max. And for Max, you know, to take on a guy like this, if he loses three in a row, it's it's not do or die. Like he's not – I know a lot of people have been taught like this isn't like a um, like a Tony Ferguson situation. Max is only 29. Cater's 32. So both of these guys are still, um, I don't want to say young in their game, but still like a loss here really doesn't hurt either guy too bad. Um, but man, I like I almost don't even know where I want to uh, where I want to start with this fight because it's just um, just stylistically uh, and stylistically, physically, everything like these guys are just great. Um, they don't do a lot of talking outside of uh, outside of the cage and just really do it all inside. Now, let's kind of, uh, let me see if I can organize this um, the best way. So physically, they're about the same size. I think they're both around 5'11". They both have similar frames. They're very, very wide and long. But Max has a much shorter reach. I think he has like a 67 or 68 reach to Calvin's 72. So they're the same height, but Max does have a shorter reach. Now, you might be saying that that favors Calvin, but... If you go watch Max's fight, he actually uses his shorter reach to his advantage. Um, it makes him seem like he's farther away, but he's able to get shots off faster because he doesn't have to cover so much distance with his hands. Um, so when guys think he's super far out, but then they still get hit with really, really quick shots, it, I think it flusters guys, and then they don't know where shots are coming from. Um 
and I think it takes it takes guys like a, a little bit to kind of figure out, and especially once um, because you know Max is really fast, but he doesn't have the most power. So then once he gets guys to kind of be on the same speed as him, if not less, or w- once once Max kind of brings his uh his opponents down to you know his level or lower when it comes to pace and stuff like that, it really um he really kind of sets in. And you know both of these guys are uh, are still like I said they're both still young and improving, so we can see various skill and technique jumps, um, you know from fight to fight. So the f- you know Max Holloway who we saw against Volkanovski those two times and uh, Calvin Cater who we saw against Stevens and Ige those last two times, it could be a totally different person going in uh, to this fight, uh, especially with for Calvin because you know this is the fight of his life. You know, if he beats Max here, this could elevate him to a title shot. He could skip over Ortega, or could be he could be in next in line after Ortega. So for him, this is really, um, I, this is one of those fights where we're in the gym. You really make those extra leaps, leaps and bounds. But um, both guys really like, uh, really like to hand fight, and they both use a lot of feints. Um, both being, you know, pretty high level strikers. Um, they both kind of use those pawing motions to get people thinking about the hands and they come over with a quick strike. Um, I forget which cater fight it was. I think it may have been the Burgos fight. I can't remember, but does the same thing. He kind of paws with his hands and then comes over with a three, two and just puts him on his ass. Um, so be looking out, I think it's going to be a fast-paced fight, but you know that first round could be a lot of fainting and uh, a lot of fainting and fakes and kind of just kind of feeling each other out. So don't be surprised if you do see that first round kind of being a feeling out process. Um, you know, you know the other crazy thing about these guys is they're both um, they're both pace-heavy guys, and both of these guys are like sharks who smell blood in the water. When they either have their opponent hurt or once they feel them fading, um, both guys are kind of slow starters in that regard. Where they do take a minute to kind of feel the other person out, and they kind of, um, if you watch the uh, Moicano fight or the first fight with Volkanovski for Max, um, and then the the Moicano fight for uh, for uh, for Calvin Cater and the G- Jeremy Stevens fight too. They come out, the, their opponents come out so strong, and they kind of throw everything right away. Where once once Calvin's kind of taken everything in, and you know they don't have so much, uh, they don't have so much power and explosiveness in their shots, and you know the the levels start coming down. They really start feeding into that, and then put the pressure on, and then you, the, the their opponent seems like a completely different fighter. Um, so that's re- I'm, I'm really excited for that in this fight. Neither guy, I want to say Max is better. Uh, especially recently, recently at um, fighting when he's the one getting backed up. You really saw that in the the second Volkanovski fight, where Max wasn't doing so much of the pushing early. He was kind of waiting back, and I think that's ultimately how he got the knockdown. If I'm not mistaken, uh, in the second fight was he was countering Volkanovski going back. Where if you watch Cater, Cater really gets flustered. Uh, if you watch the beginning of that Stevens fight, if you watch the Moicano fight, if you watch the Zabit fight, he really has a hard time if you're pushing into him and you're flustering him and you're showing him all different kinds of looks. Um, 
and again that's where both of these guys kind of do their best work so i expect this to be kind of one of those whoever is pushing forward is going to be winning the fight and kind of having their momentum dictate what's going on um so yeah again like kicks and forward pressure they definitely hinder cater um i want to say holloway doesn't throw the most kicks like he's not his game isn't so kick heavy but I don't see him making this. You know, I, I think I was hearing on Big John's podcast that Josh was uh, Josh Thompson was calling for Max to to you know kind of make it a grind to throw in takedowns, not to really get to takedown, but to get Calvin thinking about it. So you know he hesitates a little bit more. But I feel like Cater's defense, um, especially against a guy like Max. Um, will be there to where he won't have to expend so much energy and won't be worried about the takedown so much. Um, so I don't really agree with him there. Obviously, he's a professional fighter, though, and in, and in most cases, I do believe that, hey, even if you don't really have an offensive like grappling structure or a game, you should always be throwing in um, uh, ties up in the clinch or, or takedowns just to get your opponent thinking about that. But in this case, I feel like definitely throwing more kicks would be um, a better better suited for Max than than throwing in takedowns and and, and clinch heavy attacks. Um, you go back and you watch any of uh, any of uh, uh, Cater's losses, uh, even his wins. When you're kicking him heavy, he's not he's hesitant. He doesn't throw as hard, and he starts second guessing his defense. He doesn't know where to defend. Um, kicks to the body, start landing to the head, and vice versa. Um, definitely go back and watch that if you, if you don't believe in what I'm saying. Definitely go back and watch that. Um, and then on, on the flip side, uh, Cater's probably got the best boxing in at 145, and really great hands have shown uh, have proved to be Max's kind of kryptonite. If you go back and you watch the Dustin fight, um, you know Dustin was obviously way bigger. Um, way bigger than max and so i think the the power there you know definitely helped dustin out but those combinations that dustin was hitting max with was just incredible and uh, cater definitely has the capabilities to be landing some really crisp clean combinations like that so if max doesn't have the head movement or hasn't improved his head movement uh that could be a long night for max so again both of these guys have uh the strength to counter or to impose on the other guy's weakness and vice versa so i'm i'm, I'm super super stoked for this fight this weekend i don't i, I want to favor max um obviously he's more proven but this is again this is the kind of fight um that really can be a coming out party uh for a guy like calvin cater um next up we got uh where is it we got carlos Condit taking on matt brown now guys i know this isn't this both of these guys are so far removed um from their peak i mean it seems like forever ago these two were you know the killers of welterweight just destroying everybody and what's funny is this is the third time in eight years that this fight has tried to get put together it's you know not cursed like khabib and tony but it's it's definitely up there i remember i want to say i was um I want to say this fight was supposed to happen, I want to say in 2013, uh, and I was supposed to, it was an event I was going to in San Jose, and I think they were supposed to fight on there, and then I think Conda ended up dropping, and I think Jordan Meehan 
uh, ended up filling in, and that, that was a crazy back-and-forth fight where Jordan Meehan uh, drops uh, Matt Brown with a body shot, but then Meehan almost gets put in a triangle, and then it was just back-and-forth from there with Matt Brown uh, ultimately getting the TKO, I believe, in the second round. But great, great, great fight. But, um, uh, you know, if this fight were to happen in that 2013-2015 era, dude, it would have been bonkers. You know, it still has the potential to be amazing, but again, both guys are so clearly far removed from their peak um, that, you know, I I don't think it will be like a super slow old man fight. I still think it will be entertaining. Um, but, you know, even though this fight isn't what I thought it could have been, um, when I when I did see it, it did bring back a lot of old memories and nostalgia for me. You know, both these guys at one point again were the de- these guys were the definition of what MMA was to me at one point, um, and that being their grit and their never die attitude. Like both of those guys, did, whether they were getting hurt in a fight, getting injured outside of a fight, losing. They always came back in the next fight ready to kill somebody, and they didn't care who it was against. They never picked and chose opponents. They just fought the next guy in line. And that's what brought these guys to prominence. And for Condit, that's what, you know, for him, it brought him prominence that included, you know, an interim title and then two giant welterweight fights. Um, I mean, here, let's, uh, you know what? I kind of want to go down. I kind of want to do this real quick. Let's see this. So for those of you who have just, kind of you know became fans within the last couple years um carlos kind of made a name for himself as the wc welterweight champ um and then once the ufc kind of uh absorbed the welterweight and lightweight division uh of wec that they all kind of moved into the ufc and you know he had a split decision loss against martin campman martin campman at the time was kind of like a dark horse in the division who you know he could never beat the like upper echelon guys but always beat you know kind of uh you know uh rising top contenders and kind of you know those middle of pack guys but kind of takes him to a split decision but then all of a sudden condit you know he comes back he has a crazy fight with jake ellenberger that was super back and forth um has this crazy comeback against Rory McDonald. Has this has this fight with Rory McDonald back on uh, at UFC 115 of June of 2010. And the main event of that was Chuck Liddell's last fight against, uh, well, it was supposed to be his last fight against Rich Franklin, where Rich Franklin uh, knocked him out dead. But um, uh, Rory went in there like a 21-year-old savage and just put a beating on Carlos Condit for about two and a half rounds, then got tired, then Condit's, you know, uh, his uh, veteran grit came out, got the takedown, and then just beat up Rory McDonald for a liter. I think there were seven seconds left in the fight, and if that would have lasted seven more seconds, he would have lost the decision. Uh, if you don't remember, too, that's when uh, Greg Jackson was literally yelling at Carlos Condit in between rounds, like just trying to pump him up to go out there and uh, to get the W, and it ended up working. And then he gets put into a fight with Dan Hardy. And at this point, Dan Hardy's. Com- I want to say Dan Hardy is coming off of uh, the GSP loss. So this is Dan Hardy's first fight after um, coming up short against GSP. Um, and you know, because GSP uh, exposed Dan Hardy's grappling, a lot of people were picking Carlos Condit. He wasn't an underdog. But everyone was kind of. Everyone believed that you know he would probably get beat up a little bit on the feet. 
wait for a, a clinch exchange or wait for an opening in the clinch, get it, get, get a trip or get some sort of takedown and then end up submitting Dan Hardy. That's kind of what the vibe was. That, that That's kind of what we were all expecting. And then he goes in there and he, he starts throwing hands with him right away. I mean, he started bobbing and weaving and throwing combinations. He started landing great, uh, great lead body kicks to Dan. He started clipping Dan in the on the chin and... I remember, okay, that was 10 years ago, so I was like 15 years old, 50, I was like 14 or 15 years old, and I just remember being like, what, he's not supposed to be doing this right now, what's going on here, and then all of a sudden, they both sway for a counter left hook, and just condits lands first, and he ends up knocking out Dan Hardy, and that was a, and really, that Dan Hardy fight is what propelled Carlos Condit for the rest of his career, after that fight, that, all of his fights were big fights after that. Dan, uh, uh, Carlos Condit was a commodity after that Dan Hardy fight. And really, you know, it didn't have the shine um, or the name or, or any of the, the, the spectrum of or the spectacle of what um, Nick Diaz and Paul Daly were. But it was really the same thing. Again, if you don't remember, um, and that was, I think that was just like a year after this fight, but, you know, Nick, uh, Nick Diaz had that great one round fight with Paul Daly where it was back and forth. And, you know, again, everybody thought Nick would, you know, eventually just get, get a takedown on Paul and, um, and submit him. But then Diaz said, no, fuck that. I'm going to, I'm going to go blow for blow and I'm going to knock this kid out. And that's what Carlos did to Dan. So they both, and, and if you see the trajectory, obviously they both had their fight down the line that didn't live up because, you know, uh, Carlos kind of, you know, sat on the outside uh, and didn't want to, uh, like, engage in the pocket with Nick. And, you know, what's funny is I was actually at that fight live in Vegas. And I will tell you, being in the crowd live, I thought and everybody else in the arena thought that Nick won that fight. And I was like, what the hell were those guys watching? But then when I went and I watched it back home, I understood what the judges were saying. I, I don't know if it was just a better perspective because I was super close to the cage. And, you know, sometimes you don't have the best angle for everything. And I don't know if just the crowd was, uh, was you know, um, uh, influencing my decision or what. Um, but I definitely thought Nick, Nick hands down won that fight easy. But then again, when I went and I watched it at home, it was a completely different perspective. Um, but then uh, before that Nick Diaz fight, you know, Carlos Condit goes in there and he knocks out Dong Young Kim with a flying knee. And this is after Dong Young Kim gets a takedown and Carlos sweeps him from his back to get him out. Like, Carlos from, from uh, 2009 to uh, 2012 was just on another level. That was just a different Carlos. And then Carlos even goes in there against GSP and almost kicks GSP's head off and almost wins the title. Um, I just, I mean, Carlos is definitely one of those guys that's always going to be one of my favorites forever. And on the flip side, that's Matt Brown too. When Matt Brown went on that seven fight, just savage streak of just stopping everybody uh, on his way up to that fight with uh, Robbie Lawler, which was a barn burner as well. And I was live for that fight too because it was in San Jose and that was a barn burner. But both of those guys, I mean, Matt Brown would just, it looked like he was going to get stopped multiple times in multiple fights and always comes back and just drowns his opponent with elbows, punches, kicks, and violence. Um, so I'm, so even again, even though these guys are so far removed from their peak and they're, it's not going to be what it could have been, I'm still so excited for this fight. And if you're any sort of fight fan, any sort of fight fan, you definitely should be tuning in to watch this. 
oh man, I just got myself super excited. I wish that fight was happening tonight. Um, but then I also think we have Joaquin Buckley, right? We got Joaquin Buckley coming up too. Oh no, that's right. So we do got Joaquin Buckley. He's taking on Alesso DiCherico, which I mean, uh, uh, or Alessio D, yeah, whatever his name is. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's on a three fight losing streak. This is definitely like a momentum booster for Joaquin to kind of build off of, uh, you know, his last couple fights. Uh, but then we do, we got the return of Santiago Ponzinibbio and he's taking on, uh, Li Jingling. And again, I think this is a great comeback fight for Santiago. Um, I hope, I hope he can kind of, um, you know, get off some of the, the rust here. Li Jingling is definitely a dangerous guy, has a lot of power, doesn't have the speed, you know, is durable. Uh, so I think this is kind of like the perfect fight for Santiago to come back on. I definitely don't see Santiago losing here unless he's really has just lost a step. Like he, he's going to, the only way he can lose this in my opinion is if he, if this injury and this layoff has just hindered him so bad that he's four steps behind what he used to be. Um, but if not, even if he's just one step behind, I don't see how he loses this. His hands, his power, his technique are just on another level. And I'm really excited to see where he fits back in at this stacked 175 pound or 170 pound division. Um, I know that was kind of disorganized and I was a little bit all over the place. Uh, it's been a minute since I've recorded. So kind of get, uh, kind of got to get into the thick of things and, um, prepare a little bit better and just get used to speaking to you guys again. So Thank you guys for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week for a recap of this weekend's card and then a preview of all of the madness that's going to happen for that Conor McGregor fight week. Thanks, guys. See you soon.